I want to tell you a story about boxing, but what this really is is a story about race in the United States. And I want to start this story by letting you in on a secret, a secret about boxing, although maybe you already know this. The sport of boxing works. It's, it's most popular when entering the ring are two men from two different backgrounds, maybe two different ethnicities or different religions or political views, like, like two men with two different views about the Vietnam War. When two men of two different backgrounds or worldviews enter a boxing ring and confront one another directly, the boxing ring becomes a space where these identities and worldviews, where they're transformed into a, a, a tangible, understandable, physical struggle you can immediately identify with one of the fighters or against one of the fighters. You might root for the Italian-American against the Polish-American or for the Jewish fighter over the Catholic or for the guy who opposes the war in Vietnam instead of the fighter who supports it. The boxers themselves, they become almost secondary. They, they, they come to represent something much bigger than them as individuals. More than any other sport, it's boxing that is fueled by the visceral passions of identity. I mean, more than any other sport, it's boxing that relies on the idea of difference. This is American Sport, and I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. This is why boxing has been so popular and so meaningful throughout American history. I'm going to be a bit of a national chauvinist right now. I'm going to argue that boxing has meant more in the United States than it has elsewhere. And that's because of our national diversity. It's our national diversity that has given the sport its tremendous meaning. It allows for these us versus them matchups. It's this diversity that gave rise to the sport's American popularity in the 1840s. Boxing first rose to prominence and popularity in the United States in the first half of the 19th century. And that's because the sport gave expression to the national conflict over Irish immigration. The sport first appeared in print, in newspapers, and on the lips of men in saloons in that decade, the 1840s, as Americans argued about fights between Irish immigrants and native-born Americans. You know, you had a whole lot of Irish immigrants coming to the United States in that decade, and you had a whole lot of native-born Americans who resented their sudden appearance. They called themselves nativists, America for the native-born. And so these fights, these fights between Irish immigrants and native-born Americans, they were thought of as so much more than just boxing matches. They were these symbolic contests for supremacy and honor in which the boxers personified a whole group of people. They represented a whole group of people. This was the social conflict that fueled boxing's growing popularity in the middle of the 19th century. By the start of the 20th century, the dominant social conflict in this country revolved around race, the politics of race. The last decade of the 19th century and the first two decades of the 20th century, this was the low point of American race relations after the Civil War. This was the era when Jim Crow segregation was invented, when the Ku Klux Klan was reborn. This was a time of racial terror when hundreds of black men and women were executed by lynch mobs every year. The American sociologist, W.E.B. Du Bois said that 
the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, the relation of the darker to the lighter races. So let's relate this to boxing. If boxing feeds off of passions and hatreds like this, what would happen when this problem, the great American social problem of race, was transferred to the boxing ring? On July 4th, 1910, in a small boxing ring in the dusty town of Reno, Nevada, this is where we got our answer. It was here that a black man named Jack Johnson fought a white man named Jim Jeffries for the heavyweight championship of the world. And this is, in my mind, the single most significant sporting event in American history. And I say that because of all the racial drama surrounding this fight. And I say that because of all the people who were murdered when the fight was over. Boxing is unlike other sports. Love it or hate it, and you should probably hate it, but that's up to you. And But full disclosure, I like boxing. I've always been fascinated by the sport, fascinated by boxers. But love it or hate it, boxing, let's recognize this, boxing is physical competition in its most direct and rawest form. Inside the boxing ring, fighters dictate their own destinies, right? There aren't clubs and there aren't bats, it's just them, with only physical skill and their mental wits at their disposal. Two men, they enter the ring, stripped to the waist, one man wins and one man loses. Or in our more modern era, one woman wins and one woman loses. Boxing is a tough, rugged, unforgiving, violent sport. And it's because of this rugged violence, boxing can be a matter of life and death. And I mean that literally, people have died in the boxing ring. But it's this violence and the ever-present threat of death that gives boxing its unique intensity among sports. It's, it's why people have found boxing both horrifying and alluring at the same time. The writer, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, she has a fascinating book about boxing. It's titled very simply, On Boxing. It's her meditation on the sport. Here's something she points out. She writes, one plays football and one plays baseball but one does not play boxing. She knows that the stakes are higher in boxing than they are in other sports. Boxing is not a game. It is serious life and death business. Well, this business of boxing, it exploded in popularity at the end of the 19th century. And the sport was especially popular in the United States with white men. And one of the reasons is that this sport told them something that they wanted to believe. It told them that they were the best. They were the strongest and most courageous people on earth. And the proof was that the heavyweight champion of the world was white, always had been. In American sports and American culture, the heavyweight champion stands at the top of the sporting pyramid. He was the, the pinnacle of masculinity. He was held up as the toughest man on the planet. And he was always a white man. Now there were some fantastic white fighters, and I'm gonna mention a couple of them in just a second, but one of the reasons the heavyweight champion was always white was that the white heavyweight champions refused to fight black challengers. It's known as drawing the color line. They just never let a black man fight for the heavyweight championship. It was a tradition that started with John L. Sullivan, America's first national boxing star. 
And more than that, John L. Sullivan is the greatest American sports star of the 19th century. He achieved a, a celebrity unequaled in his time. Think Tom Brady, LeBron James, and Tiger Woods all rolled into one. Men who had been lucky enough to meet him, they would proudly say to others, shake the hand that shook the hand of the great John L. Sullivan, and other men were glad to do so. Sullivan was the heavyweight champion for 11 years, from 1882 to 1892. That is a remarkably long time for a boxer to remain on top. And Sullivan used to tour the country. He would offer $1,000 to any man who could last four rounds with him. Not win, just remain standing. So $1,000 to anyone who could remain in the ring with him. It would seem that Sullivan took on all comers, but he did not. John L. Sullivan refused to fight black fighters. Sullivan felt it was beneath the dignity of the heavyweight champion to fight black men. He, he thought of the heavyweight crown as a, as a holy position that couldn't risk being captured by a black fighter. And maybe Sullivan feared the challenge that some black fighters posed to his title. Though honestly, John L. Sullivan does not strike me as someone who is afraid of anything. I, I think we can chalk up his decision to racial prejudice. Well, the man who succeeded Sullivan as heavyweight champion was a guy named Gentleman Jim Corbett. Corbett had actually fought black boxers as he made his way to the title, but as soon as he was champion, he did the same thing. He followed Sullivan's lead, and he refused to fight black fighters as well. Corbett also drew the color line. After Corbett lost the title, the next great heavyweight champion was a guy named Jim Jeffries. Pay special attention to Jim Jeffries. He's one of our main characters today. Jeffries was a mountain of a man. He was six foot two, weighed 225 pounds, which is pretty big today, but immense a century ago. His size and his strength, it, it inspired nicknames. Some people called Jeffries the grizzly bear. In fact, Jeffries actually had a chained grizzly bear as a pet on his farm in California. Others called him the Boilermaker because he reminded them of a powerful steam engine. Jim Jeffries was the heavyweight champion of the world from 1899 to 1905. And he never lost a fight. Not once. But he also did not fight black challengers. Jeffries said that black boxers were inferior fighters. He said black men had a well-known weakness in the stomach that made them easy to knock out. He said, black men possess a yellow streak. They were cowards. And even if given the chance to fight for the title, they likely wouldn't show up. Now, I want to be clear. These were not the original ideas of Jim Jeffries. These were stereotypes held by many in the boxing world. Just as so many Americans believed that blacks were inferior to whites in general, white boxers repeated the lies that black boxers were mentally and physically inferior as well. And so in 1905, with no one left to fight, or so he said, Jim Jeffries walked away from boxing, undefeated, and retired to his alfalfa farm in California. But he'll be back. Into this segregated boxing world, and into the seething racial anxieties of this era, came Jack Johnson. I'm playing a track from Miles Davis's 1971 album, A Tribute to Jack Johnson. With its, with its heavy bass and drums and its muscular guitar, the music just makes me think of a boxer training for a fight, you know, punching the heavy bag. Miles Davis 
was a boxer as a young man. He, he actually wrote about playing the trumpet as being like sparring, throwing quick jabs punctuated by long loping hooks. And Miles Davis was part of a generation of black Americans in the late 1960s and early 1970s who were dusting off the memory of Jack Johnson, who had been dead for decades at that point. But now here they were, they were celebrating Jack Johnson. They were, they were thinking about him as an early expression of black power, black male physical power. And one of the things they were doing, they were thinking of him as a precursor to Muhammad Ali. When Miles Davis recorded this album at the start of the 1970s, Muhammad Ali had been stripped of his boxing title and sentenced to federal prison for refusing induction in the U.S. Armed Services. There are a lot of similarities between Muhammad Ali and Jack Johnson. Both were defiant. Both lived their lives according to their values, not the values of white America. And both were sentenced to federal prison for their beliefs. Jack Johnson was born in Galveston, Texas in 1878. He was born to parents who had once been enslaved. And Johnson took up boxing, and he was good at it. He lived a hard early life. I suppose it was the typical life of the boxer, traveling from city to city, looking for a fight and a little bit of money. But as a black man, his life was different from white boxers. It was harder to find fights. And when he did find fights early on, he was asked to participate in these strange events called battle royales. A battle royale was a derisive form of athletic entertainment in which a white promoter would put 10 or 12 black fighters in a ring, sometimes blindfold them, sometimes make them drink whiskey, and then have them brawl until only one was left standing. All the while, the white audience, they would hoot and holler at the chaotic mayhem inside the ring. I assume Jack Johnson did well in these battle royales because his strength and his boxing skills, they were undeniable. Johnson was a, a real student of boxing, and he developed a defensive style of fighting. His opponents would be endlessly frustrated trying to land a good punch against him. Some people theorize that Jack Johnson's defensive style of fighting was the product of him being a black man in the United States in this era. The idea being that just as black Americans had to learn to defensively navigate their way through a racist American society, Jack Johnson developed a defensive way of fighting in the ring. It's an interesting idea, but regardless of where that style came from, with this style, Jack Johnson rose through the ranks and became a top contender to the heavyweight title. As you know, there was one problem for a black man who wanted to be heavyweight champion of the world. It was a big problem. White champions refused to fight black challengers. They did not give them a shot. They drew the color line. And the white champions especially did not want to give a man like Jack Johnson a shot at the title. For Jack Johnson was not just a black fighter. Jack Johnson was bold. He was brash. From the perspective of many white Americans, Jack Johnson was a transgressive black man. He was a problem. Here's why they thought that. Both inside the boxing ring and out, Jack Johnson's every move was a challenge, a direct challenge to the ideology of white supremacy in America. Inside the ring, Jack Johnson didn't just defeat his white opponents, he mocked them. He taunted them. Is that all you got? My mother punches harder than you do. 
I'm going to make you hurt. As I see it, it's as if whenever Jack Johnson entered the ring, he was trying to take revenge on white America. He was trying to take revenge on his white opponent for the 300 years of abuse that black Americans had been forced to endure in this country. White Americans considered Jack Johnson a problem outside of the ring as well. Jack Johnson, he displayed his great wealth in ways that black men were not supposed to do back then. He, he wore expensive suits. He had diamond jewelry. He drove expensive cars. And he drove them fast. There's a great story about Jack Johnson. He was driving in San Francisco, and he was stopped by a white police officer for speeding and told he had to pay a $5 fine. Jack Johnson gave him $10 and said, I'm coming back the same way. The point being, white authorities, we might say the white power structure, they did not intimidate Jack Johnson. Now, all that said, by far, and I mean by far, Jack Johnson's greatest social transgression were his relationships with white women. Jack Johnson openly associated with white prostitutes. Jack Johnson was married three times. All three of his wives were white. This open interracial sexuality just was not done in this country 110 years ago. There were ministers in the South, ministers, so-called men of God, who gave sermons in which they called for Jack Johnson to be kidnapped from his home in Chicago, brought to the South, and lynched. From the perspective of most white Americans, all of these personality traits of Jack Johnson, okay, maybe they were problematic, but they were not a gargantuan problem as long as Jack Johnson never got the opportunity to fight for the heavyweight title. But Jack Johnson was persistent, and he got his chance in 1908. In 1908, with Jim Jeffries now retired for three years, the new heavyweight champion was a white Canadian named Tommy Burns. And at first, Burns also refused to fight Johnson. He drew the color line as well. But Jack Johnson stalked Tommy Burns. Wherever Tommy Burns went, the United States, Europe, Australia, there was Jack Johnson calling him a coward, calling Burns yellow. I mean, Jack Johnson was trying to pick a fight. And eventually, Burns was goaded into fighting. Or maybe a little more accurately, Burns was lured into the fight by the promise of a big payday, $30,000. This was more than twice what any boxer had ever made for a single fight. So the fight took place in Sydney, Australia on December 26th, 1908, Boxing Day, though that means something else. Most of the experts, well, they believed that Tommy Burns would win. I mean, after all, Burns was the white man. As, as they saw it, he was the, the dominant representative of the dominant race. Oh, the experts, though, they were wrong. They could not have been more wrong. Johnson was bigger than Burns, he was stronger than Burns, and he was a far superior fighter. He absolutely toyed with Burns, finally knocking Burns out in the 14th round. So now here we are, December 26, 1908, the heavyweight champion of the world is a black man. This is a turning point in the history of sports. I'm guessing many of you know who Jack London is. 
Jack London was an American author. He wrote classics like White Fang and The Call of the Wild. You know, when I read those books as a kid, they seemed to me to be about dogs. But they're not. They're really about men and masculinity. They are about manhood and race. London was also a boxing writer, and he was at this fight in Australia. He was, he was sitting ringside. And here's how he ended the column that he wrote for his newspaper, the New York Herald. But one thing now remains. Jim Jeffries must emerge from his alfalfa farm and remove that golden smile from Jack Johnson's face. Jeff, by that he means Jim Jeffries. Jeff, it's up to you. The white man must be rescued. What does it say about the ideology of white supremacy when the heavyweight champion of the world is black? So here's Jack London calling on the undefeated Jim Jeffries to come out of retirement, to put Johnson in his place and regain his crown, to, to restore racial order as he saw it. But Jeffries refused to fight. He was content on that alfalfa farm in California. He had not fought since 1905, three years. Jeffries said, no, thank you. So other white boxers tried to beat Johnson. Collectively, these boxers are known as great white hopes. Right? That is, they, they, they carried the hopes of white people everywhere, the hope that they could defeat Jack Johnson and restore racial order to the world. Jack Johnson took them all on, and he beat them all one by one. One of these fights deserves special mention. It's when Jack Johnson squared off against a white fighter named Stanley Ketchell in San Francisco. Ketchell was smaller than Johnson, uh, but he was a ferocious brawler. He was a great boxer. And the two of them, Johnson and Ketchell, were actually old friends. They liked to visit saloons and brothels together. And for this fight, there was an agreement, an agreement between them not to fight too hard in the early rounds. The idea was to prolong the fight so the fight film would make more money. This was an era when moving picture companies, they were beginning to film sports. In this instance, they were beginning to film prize fights to show American audiences. And the thought was that more people would go to see the film in the coming weeks if the fight was longer, right? Moviegoers would get more for their money. So Johnson and Ketchell, they agreed to go easy on each other in the early rounds and then start fighting in earnest later. But Stanley Ketchell strayed from the script. In one of the early rounds, as Jack Johnson was just going through the motions, Ketchell sensed an opportunity and snuck in a hard right cross and knocked Jack Johnson down. The almost all-white crowd in attendance, they rose to their feet and roared. Well, Jack Johnson got to his feet, and I'm not making this up. You can find the grainy black and white film on YouTube. Johnson got off the canvas, and with one tremendous angry punch, he knocked Stanley Ketchell unconscious. And the punch was so powerful that Ketchell's front teeth were embedded in Jack Johnson's glove. Johnson just looked down and calmly wiped the teeth away while the referee counted Ketchell out. Photographs of this moment of, of Jack Johnson standing over the limp, unconscious body of Stanley Ketchell, they were printed in newspapers around the country and think of the revolutionary potential of these photographs. Here was an irrefutable depiction of black power, black male power. 
This is why so many black Americans reveled in Jack Johnson's accomplishments inside the ring. Boxing. Boxing was providing an arena where a black man was allowed to compete with a white man on equal terms. Here was a space where a black man could strike at a white man without fear of instant murderous retribution. In the context of the time, the racial symbolism of Jack Johnson, the the transgressive power of Jack Johnson, it's hard to overstate. But of course, moments like this, this just heightened white anxieties further. And so even more white Americans, they turned to the retired champion, Jim Jeffries. They implored him to return to the ring and defeat Jack Johnson. Duty was the word they used more and more. Jeff, it is your racial duty to defeat Jack Johnson, they said. You must redeem us, they said. Well, the man who finally convinced Jeffries to try was Tex Rickard. Rickard was a sports promoter who believed that boxing could be a massive arena sport. He thought that large amounts of money could be made on boxing, and here he had the racial drama that he needed to propel the sport into the stratosphere. This fight was a promoter's dream, black versus white in an age of acute racial anxiety. Rickard offered an unheard of $100,000 to the fighters. The winner would get 75%, the loser 25%. At a time when the average industrial worker made $1 a day, this was a staggering sum of money. So Jeffrey started training. By some estimates, he had gained 100 pounds since retirement. That weight needed to go, and it did go. Jeffrey's got fit. The fight was originally scheduled for San Francisco. But moral reformers, people who found boxing, and especially interracial boxing, reprehensible, they used their influence and they got the governor of California to prohibit the fight from taking place in their state. No matter, Tex Rickard just moved the fight across the state line to the anything goes city of Reno, Nevada, a city where Americans went to drink and gamble and get divorced, sort of the Las Vegas of its day. You know, what happens in Reno stays in Reno, that sort of thing. And so the date was set. July 4th, 1910, Independence Day. Jim Jeffries, the great white hope against Jack Johnson, black America's inspiration and white America's nightmare. In a, in a sport given to hyperbole, where, where every big contest is billed as the fight of the century, this is the battle that can rightly lay claim to that title. In the days leading up to the contest, Jim Jeffries, he received thousands of telegrams wishing him luck, imploring him to defeat Jack Johnson. I think what's going on here, I think what so many white Americans wanted to see in that ring was a symbolic lynching of Jack Johnson. I really do. I think they expected to see it. Like, even though Jeffries had been out of the ring for almost five full years, most white Americans thought he was going to beat Johnson. Jeffries was the heavy betting favorite in this fight. And remember, Jim Jeffries had never lost. So there were many out there who still considered him to be the real champion. Plus, as many white Americans saw it, Jim Jeffries was the dominant representative of the dominant race. How could he lose? On the day of the fight, massive crowds gathered throughout the country, eager to get telegraphed reports of the fight. Remember, there was no TV back then. There was no radio either. 
In San Francisco, where the fight was originally supposed to take place, tens of thousands of people gathered outside of a newspaper office. What the newspaper had done, they had built a boxing ring perched on an elevated stage. And there were two boxers, one black and one white, acting out the fight based on the telegraph updates coming from Reno. The fight itself, it was an anticlimax, I suppose. I mean, if one's idea of a great fight is one that is evenly matched, then the Johnson-Jeffries fight was anything but great. Jack Johnson not only defeated Jeffries, he thrashed him. In the early rounds, Johnson, what he did, what he, what he always does, he stayed away from his opponent. He stayed away from Jeffries, that defensive style. And every time Jeffries got close, Johnson would just wrap his arms around him and hug him. Jeffries, he got tired, he got weary, he got frustrated. That's part of boxing, being in better shape than your opponent. And then, when he thought the time was right, Jack Johnson pounced. He pounded Jeffries with sharp jabs, devastating uppercuts. By the 15th round, Jeffries' nose was broken. His chest and his shorts, they were soaked in his own blood. The 15th round was this fight's last. Johnson repeatedly knocked Jeffries to the canvas, and eventually the men in Jeffries' corner, they threw in the towel, they literally threw in the towel. This is the traditional sign in boxing that they were conceding defeat. The mostly white crowd just stood there in stunned silence. Their, their hopes, their great white hopes had been dashed. Racial anxieties and tensions were so high before this contest that on the morning of the fight, Jim Jeffries had put a statement out. A statement saying that should Jack Johnson somehow win, Johnson should be allowed to leave the ring safely and unmolested. Jack Johnson did leave the ring and Reno safely, but the story was different for other black Americans. As news of Jack Johnson's victory spread throughout the United States, the nation convulsed. White Americans throughout the nation, they erupted in anger and frustration. I mean, such was the buildup to this fight. Black men and women, they were attacked, attacked in St. Louis, in Omaha, New Orleans, Little Rock, Arkansas, Los Angeles. In Norfolk, Virginia, white sailors, they, they roamed the streets looking for black men to beat up. In New York City, a white mob set fire to a black tenement and they blocked the doorway to prevent the occupants' escape. In rural Georgia, white gunmen opened fire on a construction camp housing black workers. Three black men were killed. In Houston, a black man jumped onto a crowded streetcar, boasted of Johnson's victory, and a white passenger took out his knife and slashed open the black man's throat. No one knows for sure. The, the historical record is hard to reconstruct. But as many as 26 black men and women were killed by white mobs the evening after the fight. Hundreds were assaulted or beaten. Jack Johnson's victory over Jim Jeffries ignited the first nationwide race riot in American history. There would be others. Like in 1968, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and the inner cities exploded in anger. Or in 1992, when the Rodney King verdict was announced. Now, I'm defining race riot loosely here. I'm defining it as a violent uprising sparked by an incident that had to do with race. 
but the first national race riot where violence is happening all around the country at the same time. It occurred when white Americans unleashed their anger against black Americans because a black man had bested a white man in a fair fight. Unable to beat Jack Johnson in the ring, his enemies sought other ways to bring him down. Legislation was introduced in Congress to abolish the sport of boxing altogether. How can Americans tolerate a sport in which a black man can demonstrate his superiority over a white man? That was their argument. Dozens of cities, they banned the showing of the film of the fight, a film of a black man besting a white. And then the federal government, they put Jack Johnson directly in their crosshairs. In 1912, Two years after this fight, the federal government went after Jack Johnson in court. They charged him with violating a new law called the Mann Act. The Mann Act was a federal law designed to fight prostitution. It made it a federal crime to transport a woman across state lines for quote-unquote immoral purposes. In other words, you could not transport a prostitute across state lines. The, the Mann Act made prostitution a federal crime rather than just a state crime. Now, Jack Johnson had indeed traveled across the state line with a prostitute, but this prostitute was his girlfriend. They were in a relationship. They were on vacation. In fact, he later married her. So he was not taking this woman across state lines to engage in the sex trade. But that is exactly what the federal government accused Jack Johnson of doing. And let's be clear here. By prosecuting Johnson for violating the Mann Act, the goal was to punish Johnson for his boxing success and for daring to engage in romantic relationships with white women. Johnson was arrested. He was put on trial. He was convicted. And he was sentenced to a year in prison. I've got two reactions to the verdict. The New York Call, a white-owned newspaper, they celebrated the decision against Johnson. They wrote, Johnson is black and has more money than is good for a black man. The Department of Justice must aid the white hopes in taking away the superfluous cash of the stupidly brazen Negro pugilist. Anglo-Saxon America is relieved of a most dangerous menace to the preservation of its color. Boy, you want evidence that white Americans considered Jack Johnson to be a threat to the culture of white supremacy? There it is. The civil rights leader, I started with Du Bois. Du Bois thought of it differently. W.E.B. Du Bois thought that Johnson's only real crime was the color of his skin, or as he put it, Jack Johnson's unforgivable blackness. As for Jack Johnson, while his case was on appeal, he fled the country. Johnson lived abroad, mostly in Europe, for seven years, and he continued to box. He lost his boxing title in 1915 in Havana, Cuba. Lost it to a white American named Jess Willard. Uh, they fought a grueling 26-round fight in 100-degree-plus heat. And once the title was reclaimed by a white man, the white champions, they once again drew the color line. It would be 22 years, 1937, before another black fighter gets the opportunity to fight for the heavyweight title. His name is Joe Lewis.
Jack Johnson returned to the United States in 1920. He surrendered to authorities and he served a year in Leavenworth Prison. One by one, Jack Johnson, he could beat any white man alive, but he couldn't beat them all. I, I think one way of thinking about it is to say that in the end, the white supremacists won. And we might say that white supremacy killed Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson died in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1946. He was driving through the South in one of his prized automobiles, and he stopped but was refused service at a Raleigh roadside diner. Black skin, Jim Crow. Enraged, he hopped into his automobile, sped away. He lost control of his car. He hit a telephone pole and was killed. The remarkable story of Jack Johnson has well, what I consider to be a surprising postscript. A few years ago, two U.S. senators from opposite sides of the political aisle, uh, it was the Arizona Republican John McCain and the Massachusetts Democrat Ted Kennedy, both boxing fans, they co-sponsored a petition that was sent to the White House, first asking George W. Bush and then Barack Obama to pardon Jack Johnson, to remove his 1912 conviction and exonerate him. Neither Bush nor Obama did this. And then all of a sudden, in the summer of 2018, President Donald Trump heard about the story of Jack Johnson. And it was the actor, Sylvester Stallone, the actor who famously played Rocky Balboa, who told Trump about Jack Johnson. A few days later, with Rocky Balboa himself standing by his side, Donald Trump issued a presidential order officially pardoning Jack Johnson. I, for one, did not see that coming. As I'm recording this, sports are returning to the United States after a hiatus due to the COVID pandemic. For example, NBA players, they're in their bubble in Orlando, and the courts they are playing on say Black Lives Matter. The jerseys the players are wearing say things like unity and equality. They are asking us to remember the names of victims of racial violence in this country. It's an example of sports being used to try to bridge the divides in this nation. And I think that's admirable. But for so much of American history, that's not how it worked. You know, I, I started with a secret about boxing. This is the dirty secret about American sports, much more generally. Throughout this nation's history, nothing sold sports quite like a contest between black and white. You know, not only did sports reflect the racial divisions of the time, but the popularity of sports, it was so often fueled by stoking the fires of those racial anxieties. If you can sell an athletic contest as us versus them in this country, you're gonna make a lot of money. This is American Sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios, executive produced by Katie Rohn, co-produced by Casey Helmick and Aurelia Belfield. 
You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.